0: Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you on a journey through Swedish history from when the first humans arrived here up to the modern day. I am Chris.
1: And I'm Elsa. We are still in the midst of the 1200s and we are going to resume today's episode from where we left it last time and continue our exploration of the life and work of Björjörl, one of the most famous people in Swedish history, And the first real Swedish statesman who wasn't also a king.
0: Yes, we've had lots of kings but not very many politicians. If you haven't listened to our latest episode before this, which was episode 38, we strongly recommend you to do that first because then what happens in today's episode will make much more sense and you'll get the backstory or the origin story to who Beryal was and also all the events that have taken place up till now in the story. While you're at it, episode 37 might be worth listening to as well, as this has some background to the years before Beryal comes on the scene. And like with the last few episodes, there's also a new family tree out on our social media pages for you to have a look at before, during or after listening to this one. If you need a little bit of extra help visualising all these family relationships, Uh, it definitely helped us when doing the research and writing the scripts, getting to know where everybody fits in. Um, But before we get on with Birja, let's do our Swedish Phrase of the Week, which is actually not a phrase, it's just a word.
1: Yes, and the word is björntjänst, which translates to English as a bear's favour or a bear's service.
0: So is that kind of when a bear is nice to you and carries home your shopping uh, back from the <laughs> shops? <laughs>
1: no actually not uh uh, that's a very kind bear that does that for you but actually a björnsjänst a bear's favor is the opposite it's not nice at all and it doesn't involve any actual bears i'm afraid or or maybe that's a good thing
0: no that's no it's disappointing
1: (laughs) a björnsjänst is when someone does something that's intended to be nice, but actually the results ends up hurting or negatively affecting the person who receives the favor. So let's say you're carrying a heavy bag and I want to help you, but when I go to grab the bag, that results in you dropping the bag and it lands on your foot and you hurt yourself. So my intentions towards you was good i wanted to help you but my actions meant that you ended up hurting yourself so in that instance i would be doing you a bear's favor and beyond chance
0: so like a bad favor basically
1: Yeah, this phrase actually has a backstory that I wasn't aware of until I looked into it. It comes from a French fable called The Bear and the Gardener by the 17th century writer Jean de La Fontaine. In the story, there's a bear who wants to do something nice for his friend, the gardener, and what he wants to do is he wants to squash a fly that has landed on the gardener's head but the bear grabs a stone and hits the fly on the friend's head. Yes, he kills the fly, as was intended, but he also kills his friend, the gardener, because he bashes his face with a stone.
0: Yeah, that's the definition of overkill, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so that ended, ended up being a favor that affected the recipient negatively, and because it was a bear in the fable who did it, that developed the phrase björnsjänst, a bear's favour. Now, I don't know if this then became a phrase in French that then made its way to Swedish, or if the phrase was created here in Sweden after that fable was translated to Swedish. Uh, I've never heard it in French or in any other language for that matter, But maybe if we have any French-speaking listeners, you could tell us if you know this story, the bear and the gardener, and if this phrase is also a phrase in French.
0: Yep, definitely do get in touch. But from Bears to Biria, where did we leave the great Jarl of Sweden last week?
1: Well, we saw how Biria Jarl was born into the powerful Bjellby family – learning the ways of the Jaldom first from his uncle, Karl the Deaf, and then his cousin, Ulf Fosse, married King Eric's sister, Ingeboy in the middle of the 1230s, and gradually started to take on more responsibilities in the kingdom. Uh, he first resolved a local dispute between some farmers and monks down in Småland.
0: Got to start somewhere.
1: You do, and then he showcased his military ability, leading a campaign first to Finland and then over to Novgorod. He lost a battle against the Prince of Novgorod, perhaps receiving a big wound to his face whilst leading the Swedish forces. He returns home to Sweden and continues raising the family he started with Ingeborg shortly after their marriage. And in 1247, he leads King Eric's army against a rebel army raised by the Folkung faction who wanted to return Sweden to a more locally run political system.
0: And after he wins this battle, Birger is appointed Jarl of Sweden by King Erik after his cousin Ulfasa dies. And then Birger Jarl is a major player at a religious-slash-political meeting at Huenegger. Among other things, decided at this meeting was that Swedish priests now really did have to remain celibate.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they had like not been as- observing that for a few hundred years, and then the Pope finally went, "No, enough of the sleeping with women."
0: And then Beria manages to wrangle things so expertly that when King Eric dies childless, Beria's son Valdemar is elected king at the tender age of ten, and that's where we got up to last time. We have another very young king in charge, just like the last 100 years or so, but this time there's no Regency Council, or perhaps the council just consists of Bia Jarl uh, and maybe his wife Ingeborg. Well,
1: think of all the bureaucracy that was saved, though. I mean, it might not be very sort of inclusive and democratic, but you can have very short meetings, not many minutes to type up, quite an easy decision-making process.
0: Yes, in many ways, I would approve of this uh, way of ruling um, in terms of the paperwork because I'm sure it was efficient, Um, but probably only very helpful for Birger Jarl himself and uh, probably his wife, because what we have now is, for all intents and purposes, a situation where Birger is the sole ruler of Sweden. He is king in all but name.
1: Indeed, but he doesn't just get to hang around the royal residence and enjoy his power Not for long, at least, because in 1251, the year after he made his son Valdemar king and essentially took over all the power, the Falkungs rise up again.
0: It's less than 10 years since he he Uh. beat them last time. This is like whack-a-mole. It's getting really (laughs) annoying. this isn't the first time they rise up of course as we saw in the last episode be begins uh we covered their first uprising and subsequent battle of Sparsetra in 1247 and we also talked about who they were so if you feel like you need a bit of a reminder of what their goals were and everything just go back and give a listen to that once again, it's Philip Knutson, son of the former king Knut the Tall and brother of previous rebel Honger Knutson, who died at the Battle of Sparsetra, who leads the Falcons. Philip thinks it should be him on the throne rather than some small little kid who's essentially being controlled by his father and Jarl. The Falcons also want to move Sweden in a different direction politically because they don't like the centralisation of power and the strengthening of the state's overarching control of the country, but rather think that they should go back to a time when the king was properly elected from all the nobles around Sweden and power was much more local and connected to each other around in these different counties than just based with the king. Philip has the support of several Swedish noblemen and they kick off this new revolt. But then, to gather even more strength, they recruit some Danes and possibly also some Germans to fight with them.
1: The uprising comes to blows at Harevårdsbrug. We don't know exactly when in 1251 and, as is often the case, historians aren't entirely sure where Harevårdsbrug was located. And most likely, though, it is in Västmanland county, so that's sort of inland from where Stockholm is, if you think of a map of Sweden. We don't know too much about the battle itself, we don't know how many took part or how long it lasted for, but we do know that Biel did something that was very sneaky, if not to say downright awful
0: or illegal, perhaps, um, certainly in the modern day, because he did what would not be considered fair fighting in any way, certainly not today and probably not back then either. In fact, he plays quite a dirty trick. Now, Birya, as part of his forces, has got the Bishop of Strengnes with him, a man called Cole. At one point during the battle, perhaps because everybody's getting a bit tired, the bishop stands up and says, "Okay, let's have peace, in the sense of let's have a break, not have a peace treaty, but let's just take a pause. Maybe it was getting near night, and we know that not many battles took place in night, so the bishop gets up and calls a halt to the fighting. In modern terms, we might say he called a brief ceasefire or something like that. The Falcons agree, and they lay down their arms. but then, as soon as they've done that, Birjarl jumps out with his men and attack these innocent, uh, unarmed men, killing and wounding everyone they can find, and eventually forcing those who do remain alive to surrender
1: I mean, that is a very dirty trick indeed. they call a f- what we in modern terms might say was a ceasefire, and then bejar just tricks them with that and then jumps out and, uh, and stabs them in the back. So, dirty trick. Cowardly, in fact, to trick your enemies with a fake ceasefire and then attack them. Uh, we're definitely seeing a ruthless side to Bioyal here. He doesn't seem to mind how things are done as long as he gets what he wants.
0: Yeah, he's definitely acting like a violent tyrant rather than sort of a noble leader who's playing by the rules. His methods might seem despicable, but he gets what he wants, which is the ultimate aim of the game. This is the last of the falcon uprisings as a result, and this rebel group, if we should call them that, will now fade into obscurity. Their leader, and that son of Knut the Tall, Philip Knutson is captured in this battle, but he doesn't last very long because he's soon executed. And with this one foul swoop, Berger has solidified not just his and his family's rule over Sweden, but his way of ruling, this increased and strengthened centralisation of power and the state.
1: So after years of these domestic problems with the Volkungs and the various uprisings and battles, the rest of BIO's time in power will be quite peaceful on the domestic front, which is nice because that means that he can focus on other, less violent things in domestic politics.
0: Yes, the ends justify the means would be a phrase that he would say uh, if that was around at the time. And now this is sorted out, Berger puts the point of trade at the top of his domestic agenda. And, well, I guess that's actually both domestic and foreign policy when you talk about it, because this involves trade with Germany in particular. Now, when we say Germany, we obviously need to remember that there is no Germany as such during the Middle Ages. What we know as modern-day Germany doesn't come around until the second half of the 1800s, so this is very much a different Germany. When we talk about Germany in the Middle Ages and at this point what we actually mean is a collection of small states, some almost just city states, where people spoke German and shared certain cultural and political ties but there wasn't one king or Kaiser of Germany or anything like that at Some point in the next few episodes, we'll talk about the Hanseatic League, which was a very German focused uh, entity because that will become very important for Sweden and how it relates to Sweden. But for now, let's just say that the Hanseatic League was a sort of trade federation or trade confederation, if you don't want to say a word that was from Star Wars. I read it says trade confederation, but I said trade federation because that's uh, in Star Wars. Anyone who uh, watches a lot of Star Wars would probably made the same mistake. Um, but yeah, so the Hanseatic. League was a trade confederation based in Lübeck, and they were very influential in controlling trade around the Baltic Sea. Birger clearly saw that these German traders were important for Sweden, and if you played your cards right with them, you could get a lot out of your relationship with them.
1: Yeah, and he was right in his assessment of German traders and of trading with Germany. This was where the wind was blowing in the second half of the 1200s. These were the guys that you wanted to hang out with. Sweden had stuff to trade. We had timber, fur, hides, farm products. And it was great if these products could be sold on a larger market on the continent rather than just domestically between ourselves and our Scandinavian neighbours. The German traders came with their cogs, a type of boat,
0: not a type of Dutch shoe.
1: Well, also a type of Dutch shoe. but, yeah, but the... no,
0: not at this time. No,
1: what we're talking about now, they didn't sail up in Dutch wooden shoes. They A cog <laughs> is a type of boat. This is absolutely unnecessary information for the listeners. But they came in cogs, which are boats and also shoes, up the Baltic Sea to trade in Swedish ports. And with them, they brought not just stuff to trade, but also new cultural phenomena, new words that would make their way into the Swedish language. And last but not least, they brought expertise. Because the Germans, they knew stuff that the Swedes didn't. In particular, they were great at building techniques and at beer making. So remember the first Gothic cathedral to be built in Sweden was nearly a hundred years after the first one was started in Europe. So there was the opportunity to profit from offering new frangle European ideas to Sweden coming in with these German traders.
0: Yes, and these are two great skills to have, building and brewing. Um, It's something that I would definitely be interested in. And thanks to these Germans, or at least some of these Germans who brought their skills and settled in Sweden, both semi-permanently and seasonally, and those who settled here permanently, we get both an expansion of Swedish towns and also better beer. (laughs) So great results for everyone.
1: Good news all around.
0: Exactly. And one such example of their extending presence was, of course, the Church of St. Mary on Gotland in Visby, which we saw was consecrated as an official church by Birger brother a few episodes ago.
1: Another reason why Birger was so keen on making friends with the Germans was that Denmark had quite poor relations with Germany and with the Hansa. It meant that there was more opportunity for Sweden to take control of a lot of the trade coming out of Scandinavia. So by Sweden being pally with the Germans, that annoyed the Danes, and at this point, Bielior really likes to annoy the Danes because the Danes supported the Falkungs in their rebellion against him.
0: So whilst it's it's great for Sweden that all these Germans are bringing new ideas and better beer, it's also a way of getting back at Denmark through a third party sort of thing.
1: Yeah, you could say that. Uh, In the early 1250s, Bierguss strikes trade deals with German parties, especially with traders from Lübeck. The essence of the deals were that BIO exempted the traders from paying tax or reduced the amount they needed to pay, which is always something that traders like because then that means more money straight into their pockets. But in return, BIO demanded that the Germans followed Swedish law and didn't expect any special treatment when in the country. Basically, he said... I will make the business climate as favourable as I can, but you have to play by our rules and we treat you no differently than we do our own people.
0: Which seems fair enough. And uh, you could say that this way of dealing with the Germans serves two purposes for Biria – it creates a good environment for trade and brings profit to Sweden, but at the same time it continues to strengthen the state itself because Birger can show that within Sweden the same rules and laws apply to everyone, whether you're a farmer from Smorland or a trader from Lübeck, and this creates unity in the kingdom.
1: There was one place in Sweden that would benefit from this trade with Germany more than anywhere else, and that's Stockholm. Now, we spent all of episode 33 talking about the birth of Stockholm and how it grew as a town, so we're not going to repeat too much of that now. Uh, What we should say, just in relation to B.A.R. is that he's very fond of Stockholm.
0: Yeah, so perhaps fond isn't the right word because we don't know if he actually likes it personally as a place or not, but he certainly appreciates the value of it and of the German traders coming there.
1: Yeah, that's a much better way of putting it. Stockholm is the perfect trading place because it sits right where Lake Merlaren meets the sea. So Swedes can come from the inland out to the coast and then the German traders can come up the Baltic Sea and meet them here in Stockholm to trade. Appreciating the importance of the location, he initiates and supports building projects and he spends more time here. The court is still mobile at this point in time, but now Stockholm is added to the list of places where the court should stop and stay for a while to show its presence and power.
0: Indeed, and on July of 1252, Birger writes a letter to Fugder Abbey, outside Strangness, and it's in this letter that we get the first written mention of Stockholm. So Birger is the first person we know who mentions Stockholm by name in writing, or at least the first mention, of course, uh, that we have preserved. This and his general involvement with early Stockholm has meant that people have later credited him as being the founder of Stockholm, giving him that grand title. As we saw in our episode about Stockholm, this is a bit of an exaggeration, as Stockholm doesn't seem to be founded by one person or at one event where someone said, right, now we're founding this (laughs) town. Rather, it grew organically over a period of time in both size and importance. Still, Berger definitely saw the importance of it as a town and took the big decision to support it as an up-and-coming place as the leader of Sweden and therefore that's why he's remembered all across Stockholm for it. There's a statue of him on a square that's named after him, which we went to see Mm. uh, a few weeks ago to pay homage to him. Mm -hmm. And uh, we filmed a short video there, which is now on our social media.
1: Yes, and I'm sure he'd be very pleased with that and pleased with his square, of course. Uh, However, if you come to Stockholm and you think you can visit his grave in that square or visit it anywhere else, you are mistaken. There's something that looks like his grave outside the city hall. It's a big stone coffin with a large golden statue of him lying on top. Above him hovers a canopy supported by four columns carved in granite surrounded by iron railing. It's a, it's a very grand tomb, but it's empty. It was built in the 1920s at the same time as the new city hall was being built, and seeing as Bia is seen as this founder of Stockholm, although he wasn't really, he was incorporated into the design. Unfortunately for the city council of Stockholm, I assume, his actual burial place, which is at Varnhem Abbey, said that no Stockholm council, you're not allowed to come to Varnham and take Björn's bones with you back to Stockholm. He's buried here. So the council had built this giant golden tomb for Bialyall <laughs> and then weren't given his bones. You would think that someone would check with the abbey before commissioning the giant Tomb and golden statue, but uh, no. So yeah, there's it's a nice monument, but it's empty.
0: Yeah, you definitely think someone should have checked with the abbey beforehand, but um, oh well. Back to a living Berger jarl in our timeline, and he doesn't just get involved in trade and the rise of Stockholm at this point in his career. There's also more diplomatic style foreign affairs to deal with, in addition to the trade with the Germans. As we've seen time and time again over the last couple of hundred years, the Scandinavian countries never stay friends for too long. There's always something that comes up to send them <laughs> off fighting and hating each other once again. This time, the Danish king Arbel has been annoying both biel Jarl and King on the Old of Norway for a while. King Arbol has got a bit of a dangerous reputation as he murdered his brother, King Eric IV, in order to take the throne of Denmark. So I think people are dealing with him with a little hands-off approach. Yeah, Don't, don't you trust would. this guy. Yeah, Danes are making life difficult for the German traders in the Baltic Sea as they're going out as pirates and attacking them. And so this means that uh, Bergigal is obviously quite annoyed at this happening. This adds to the frustration for Burja Jarl as Danes had supported the various falcon rebellions against him or against King Erik and King Valdemar's rule whenever they tried to take the Swedish throne. So there's sort of two reasons why Sweden are going to be pretty annoyed with Denmark and Danes in general at this time. So it's all quite messy, and eventually Bilya and King Håkon of Norway think that Arbor has really crossed the line by getting too involved in their business and generally making life miserable for everyone around the Baltic Sea. So it's time to go in, reprimand him, and put the situation to bed. On top of this, Norway and Denmark have been fighting over various points of land for centuries now, and Håkon the Old has his eye on the Danish province of Halland. Now, a quick update on Norway at this time. The king is King Horkon the Old, as we've mentioned, but he's actually sharing the crown and power with his son, handily called Haakon the Young. <laughs> Haakon the Young is still a legitimate king, Norway likes sharing the crown at this point, but there's a few technical differences between the two. Horkon the Young isn't actually crowned, but he's still called king. It's too complicated to get into right now. But it's this Horkon the Young that Berger Jarl married his daughter Rikissa to just a few years earlier. In fact, this marriage between Rikissa and Horkon the Young of Norway is seen by some historians as an explicit attempt by the Norwegian king to strengthen and create an alliance against Denmark. In 1253, the Swedes and the Norwegians decide to gather their forces to attack Denmark. They do this, physically, on Gulberg's Head, a heath located pretty much where Gothenburg is today. But remember this area isn't Swedish yet, and Gothenburg itself doesn't exist either. Just as they're getting ready to march off to Denmark, there's a message that arrives that says King Arbel is dead. Since Birger's beef, so to say, was mainly with Arbel personally and not Denmark as such, Birger decides that he doesn't want to risk his men's lives and all this drama and go to war with Denmark now that Arbel is dead. So he calls off the planned attack, or at least the Swedish part of it, and sends his troops home. He then reaches a separate peace settlement with the Danes in the summer of the next year. Although uh, it's not really, can we call that a peace settlement since they never actually fought each other? It's just an agreement to not go to war (laughs) rather than end a war.
1: In fact, Ulf Sundberg in his book Medeltidens Svenska Krig Swedish Wars of the Middle Ages calls it the war that never was which we thought was quite a good name for it uh, because they yeah, they never actually started the war. Denmark and Norway will continue to fight each other, though. Håkon formally claims Danish Halland in 1253 and finally invades the province on his own in 1256. His official reasoning is that he needs it as compensation for the looting of Norwegian ships in Danish seas. Uh, So Birgit and Håkon really both hate these Danish pirates. Um, Håkon was, however, forced to renounce his claims on Halland in 1257 after a peace agreement was made with the new Danish king, Christopher I of Denmark, and Birger acted as a negotiator between the two.
0: Excellent name, by the way, King Christopher.
1: <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that.
0: Yeah. The year after the Danish-Swedish Peace Treaty of 1254, Birger suffers a personal loss when his wife, Ingeborg, dies on the 17th of June. Just like with Birger Jarl, we don't know when she was born, and so naturally we don't know how old she is when she dies but based on events in her life and when she has her children, historians have assumed that she's in her mid to early 40s at the time of her death. We also don't know what she dies of, but she's given birth to her fourth son and eighth child overall earlier that year, so it's possible that her death was somehow linked to complications from the pregnancy or that childbirth, but that is just a guess. Looking back on it, Birger and Ingeborg's marriage was definitely a political alliance, but they seem to have gotten on well enough. There's no record of Birger's reaction to his wife's death, but we can assume he was at least a bit upset. You could in some way say that it was Ingeborg who enabled Birger to become who he was at the start. She was the one who was of royal blood, So by marrying her, Birger came a lot closer to the real core of power in a legitimacy sense, and she's the one who enabled him to have a son, or four sons by this point, and to put one of those on the throne and make it legitimate to secure his behind-the-scenes rule through this legitimate son and king, Valdemar. And let's not forget, she also enabled him to have four daughters, who he could marry off to make political alliances, both foreign and domestic, which we've already seen happen once at this point.
1: Yeah, family is really important to Bjergjör, as it has always been to the Bjergjör family as a whole. We already talked about how his eldest daughter, Rekisa, married the son of the Norwegian king to form an alliance there. And later on, in 1258, Bjergjör decides that his son, King Valdemar, will marry Sophia, the daughter of the former Danish king, Erik IV. The Danes had three brothers in a row who were king, uh, starting with Sophia's fathers Eric, then Abel, the murderer guy, and finally now Christopher. This means that she is the niece of the current Danish king, Christopher. Bilol certainly likes to use his family, and in particular his kids, as pawns on the political chessboard, it seems. But, like in every good game of chess, sometimes pieces get taken and are removed from the board. In 1257, Håkon the Young in Norway dies of a strange illness, apparently even treated at one point by a Spanish doctor who was on a diplomatic trip to Norway, which is a lovely detail that one of the sagas give us. This means that BIL's oldest daughter, Rikissa, is now widowed, single, and returns to Sweden, meaning that there isn't a formal link between Norway and Sweden anymore. But luckily, this doesn't cause any large rifts between the two neighbours.
0: And even though Bielia had pulled out of the war that never was with Denmark, relations continue to be tumultuous between the three Scandinavian kingdoms. Eventually, they seem to have realised that no one was going to gain anything from this, and they decide to have a big meeting and try to settle everything in one go. The Norwegians and Swedes meet at a place called Lena in 1258, which, again, no one seems to be sure where it is, but it's probably in Vesterjørland, and then they got the Danes involved afterwards. We know very little about what happened at the meeting, or maybe there were several separate meetings, but what we do know is that they seem to agree on that if they all married various children and nieces and nephews off to one another, that would calm the situation down, at least in the short term, and help maintain the peace.
1: Classic medieval trick. Uh, They seem to think that if they got all involved in each other's families and intermarried, then that would act as a bulwark against them fighting each other, because they do this a lot uh, in this period. However, they've already done this to such an extent over the centuries that they are now so intermarried with each other, these Scandinavian royal families, that there's a fear of incest. So if you as a listener thinks, oh, this is getting a bit incestuous now well they thought so too at the time in the end they have to ask the pope who in turn seems to have looked at the interwoven family trees and in the end decided that no you're fine you're not too closely related these people can go ahead and marry so, this is what results in King Valdemar of Sweden, who is now in his late teens, marrying Princess Sophia of Denmark. And then Sophia's sister, uh, another woman called Ingeborg, uh, marries Prince Magnus, another son of the Norwegian king, Hjalcon the Old.
0: That's it. All the marriages are now sorted out, and they happen in various years following the peace agreement. It's- quite a lot of time sorting out his family for Beryal because he does have quite a lot of kids so he he wants to be in control of everything so he probably had an hour or two a day in his calendar booked out as family time but not family time Uh as in having fun with his family but managing his family.
1: In my head I imagine he had taped pictures of his children onto chess pieces and then he moved them around on the map of Europe like oh, if I put my daughter in Norway and marry her off there, and then I put my son with this woman there. Yeah, he, he, I don't. they don't seem to have had much say in the matter themselves, the kids.
0: No, and it would actually make sense because one could be the king and uh, one eventually becomes a bishop, so he could be the bishop. And the, the pieces are the correct pieces as well. So, who's the pawn? <laughs> that's, the, that's the question. There's plenty more to talk about in Billy Yar's life, and conscious of time, we don't want to cram it all into one episode that ends up being 90 minutes or two hours long, as some people don't like that kind of length of episode. So we'll take a break for now, and we'll continue the story next time. So we leave Sweden today with King Valdemar newly married to the Danish king's niece and Birger Jarl's daughter Rikissa returning to Sweden after a six-year-long marriage to the joint king of Norway. And there are various peace treaties signed amongst the three neighbours to keep it all hanging together with various other marriages. Birger Jarl has also helped formalise the Swedes' relationship with German traders frequently visiting the country and kick-started some of the activity around Stockholm. If that wasn't enough, he's even had time to defeat the latest Falken Rebellion, so things are setting up quite nicely for the next time where we'll see him continue on as this puppet master extraordinaire of Sweden.
1: Indeed, I can't wait to see what he gets up to next time. We're really seeing him creating a role for himself as a statesman, both domestically and in. Foreign politics, unlike anything we've seen before,
0: Yes, and uh, if you want to comment on what we've seen so far, you can get in touch with us uh, on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, on the details that we've mentioned many times before. Um, we posted a few photos recently, like we said, of uh, the statue of Birgall in Stockholm near the Old Town on the Ridderholm Island. And we've been to the Stockholm University Library to get some great new sources and books uh, to read especially for this part but also the next parts in the story so there's lots going on uh, lots of cool photos and those family trees on our social media if you haven't checked those out and you can also get in touch with us via email as well
1: but for now that's goodbye from us
0: yep see you next time Hey off